Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue of BTN, and we're in it now. Uh, football season's underway. Just wrapped up week one a few days ago, and as of this recording, we're actually closer to week two getting underway. So we'll uh, be churning out podcasts each and every week here um, on the BTN Take 10 Podcast, and we'll be doing uh, a variety of interviews with a lot of media, maybe some athletes as well. And uh, we'll keep them coming at you as we roll through football season here. One of the best times of year at BTN. Um, so the last couple of years, if you follow the show, we've tried to have a writer on every week, or national media member, TV uh, analyst, whoever, on to kind of do a weekly breakdown of, of what happened the week before and what to look ahead to in the uh, college football landscape. We wanted to adhere to strict of a, I guess, script this year. Um, last couple of years, it was like, okay, we had to have a writer on, and we will get this media coverage and kind of do it in a nice and neat package each week. Um, Going to try and loosen that up this year, and you know, if we get a media personality on or a writer, great, and we will, um, you know, definitely talk about what happened in college football and what's going on in the sport, but I think it's going to be less of a, of a, you know, we have to hit these notes and more just have a free-flowing conversation. I might talk about the uh, media member's background and just have more of a, a loose, casual conversation. And some weeks you might not have a, a personality or writer on at all. It might be an athlete, a player. It just depends. So uh, this week we did have a national writer on. Uh, we had Matt Fortuna join the show, first-time guest on the Take 10 podcast. Matt is a writer for The Athletic. He's a Big Ten guy, went to Penn State and covered Notre Dame for a while, wrote for ESPN, and has been with The Athletic for the last two years. And uh, he had some great insight and some great stories about some pieces he's written for The Athletic in the last week or so. Uh, He's been grinding, hitting the ground running in the 2019 season with some uh, really good stuff. He was at two different games this past weekend, and uh, we talk about a lot of different topics both in the Big Ten and outside the conference as well so Matt breaks down uh, the Big Ten breaks down his stories and we get to a lot of good stuff in the next half hour and beyond that we brought BTN researcher Harold Shelton back in the studio for his weekly stat head segment which runs pretty much every week um, in football and basketball season Harold's got a, a great mind and a great um, you know, skill for you know putting numbers into uh, coherent and concise thoughts in a podcast format. So got Harold in here for about 20 to 25 minutes talking about uh, everything that happened in week one in the Big Ten and to discuss what lies ahead in week two. So pretty packed episode today with Matt Fortuna and Harold Shelton, and we'll start with Matt's interview off the top. So kick it over to... As I mentioned, writer with The Athletic, he also contributes to Stadium. It's Matt Fortuna, and that interview starts right now. I'm very pleased to be joined by a college football writer for The Athletic. It's Matt Fortuna. He's also a contributor at Stadium. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt underscore Fortuna. Matt, how's it going, man? Good to be here. Happy to have uh, week one under our belts. And uh, as they say, uh, you improve the most between week one and week two. So I'm ready to get back at it this weekend. How about you? 
Yeah, it's uh, good to have you on. Um, it's good to be back in the swing of things. I, I miss football. I'm excited uh, that soon we're going to have the NFL to look forward to on Sundays as we're watching college football on Saturdays. I'm just a big big football guy in general. So uh, speaking of football guys, we kind of have to start with, with a piece you wrote this past weekend on Hugh Freeze, a Liberty coach. Um, there's really nowhere else to start because he coached from a hospital bed, and that's the ultimate football guy move. So uh, what made you decide to write about that, and um, how did the story kind of come together? Uh, what made me decide to write about it is I could not simply get enough of this. I mean, it, it, it's like everything weird and, and kind of misguided about the sport that we hold so dear to our hearts all wrapped up in, in such a memeable fashion, if you will. I mean, uh, every joke kind of outdid the other in terms of the, the I will remember you dubbed over with, you know, Babers waving to him, the, the, the happy Gilmore guys with Chubbs and everyone looking down uh, with Hugh Freeze. I mean, it is just so absurd. And and you can't think of like a more kind of a woe is me kind of character, if you will, than Hugh Freeze. Not, not to delegitimize the health issues he's going through, but like, who, who the heck is he serving? Uh, on his football team by coaching a game from a hospital bed and only calling plays on first and second down. Like, what, you couldn't do third from there, too, with the visor and the sneakers on? So, uh, as far as the story, um, I covered games on Thursday and Monday, which meant I was home on the couch Saturday. And, uh, yeah, as fun and exciting it was, it wasn't the most dramatic week one in terms of high-profile games. And when I saw uh, that, I mean, I, I, I just had so many questions. And so uh, I was able to at least get in contact with the sideline reporter, Melanie Newman, from that game. Happened to be her first game. She had had no uh, experience with Hugh Freeze whatsoever. However, she did get hired full-time this week by the school to be their full-time sideline reporter. So they must have liked what they saw at the halftime interview. Uh, but, but to hear her talk about being in that hospital room slash coaching box that they cut a hole through the wall for, however you want to describe it, um, I, I just could not get enough of that. I mean, it, it was so funny to me from, from an optic standpoint. It'll continue to be funny. And uh, I can only imagine uh, the charades are going to try to pull this week considering they have a road game and the guy's supposed to be in the hospital for another three to five weeks, I believe. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that concept you talked about of, uh, you know, the sport kind of at its, at its extremes. And at Big Ten Media Days, we get some time with each head coach. And I kind of tried to play on the fact uh, in the questioning with these coaches that at their core, they're all kind of crazy people because they work, you know, 100 hours a week. They're so dedicated to their craft. And then the Hugh Freeze story where he has surgery and then coaches from a hospital bed in the press box just kind of encapsulates that to the extreme. And and, and you, you mentioned you uh, interviewed the sideline reporter. It's kind of an example of a story you didn't really even need access to the subject themselves or anyone really at liberty, right? You just kind of talk to uh, Melanie Newman, like you said, and, and that's kind of a story that the athletic lets you roll with it's not like you have to cite like multiple like five sources from from the subject kind of the old school journalism it kind of it kind of feeds into what the athletics all about in my opinion oh well yeah it was, it was a little different for sure i mean i like being able to kind of uh take advantage uh, of a moment or a hot topic if you will that a lot of people are talking about and clearly that was one that we're still talking about days later and probably will continue to talk about until uh Hugh Freeze is up and standing on his own two feet on the sideline. But, um, you know, he, he, he had uh, done his little Skype press conference or whatever you, you want to call it after the game. You know, Babers had spoke after the game, so there were quotes and whatnot available. And, you know, I was just kind of looking for, like, the immediate, like, what like what was this like, especially from, you know, a, a reporting standpoint. I mean, as Melanie said in the story, you know, they, they weren't sure what the situation was going to be. And when I got asked two hours before the game, hey, will you interview him 
upstairs. I said, sure. And it was kind of like, oh, by the way, he's going to be in a hospital bed. And I was like, what? Okay. Um, and this is someone who is also a full-time minor league baseball announcer and had a call of hers go viral a few weeks ago because of skunk rain on the field. So it, it kind of encapsulates just what a wild month it had been for her and just the, the crazy nature of being in the media, the sports media environment in this day and age. Yeah, and I assume that part of the reason, aside from the fact that, you know, the athletic seems to be a stable spot for a lot of writers right now, which is a good thing, but I assume one of the reasons you joined was because of the freedom that, you know, it kind of affords you to write about goofy stuff like this alongside the serious stories. So I know the, you know, the why I joined the athletic uh, column from from the writers has kind of become infamous at this point, and it's kind of turned into a thing of its own, but I'm going to have you rehash your reasoning here, if you could, why did you join the athletic and had the opportunity come about? First things first, I was unemployed. So I, of course I was going to say yes. Right. <laughs> I was uh, living the summer of Matt in, in 2017 uh, after my six years at ESPN and I was living a freelance life. But um, I, I was familiar with the product having been in Chicago and being already a subscriber and having worked in the past with some of the guys who were um, writing for the Chicago site. So uh, I knew what they were about. Um, Obviously, at the, that point, there were only two or three city sites, and now they're in every major North American and uh, European market now. Uh, so it's been crazy to see, having just celebrated our two-year anniversary uh, as a college football vertical last week, just night and day in terms of man and woman power and our brand growth and reach really throughout the the world. Um, it's been pretty cool to see. Uh, um, it's just a tremendous place to work at, uh, tremendous people, tremendous leadership, treat their employees the right way. Um, it's just a pleasure to come to work for every day. And yes, we, we are given a lot of editorial freedom, uh, which is, uh, very rewarding. I think from, from a writer's perspective, you know, we're, we're proactive in what we do. That's why we got into this business to begin with. Um, and they are very, uh, willing and open to hearing all of our ideas and pitches and, and not afraid to, to send us to places both near and far, uh, to try to tell the best possible story. And, uh, we've seen that resonate with the readers and from, you know, a college football standpoint, your biggest fear initially starting up from, from, from ground zero, if you will, with a new company is, uh, will I still get some access? Will I still be able to do what I do working for a company that, uh, no one had heard of at this point two years ago and uh to see uh the way we've been welcomed with open arms at most schools around the country has definitely been rewarding as well yeah i'm glad you brought that up because i'm curious about the mix of resources that you're afforded and and the access that you get from the schools you mentioned in an article you wrote you mentioned you, you um worked on monday at the louisville notre dame game you mentioned in the article that they granted you you know behind the scenes access and and i'm, I'm sure they kind of pulled back the curtain for you um, so first of all, do you get to you try and get to a game every week? I, I assume, or what's what's kind of your weekly schedule? And then once you're there, does the access kind of depend on the school, or are you generally granted, um, you know, the trust of the schools that that you'll be able to, um, you know, tell their story basically with free reign and a free reign look at things? Yeah, kind of an inside journalism thing. Um, in my current position, being in Chicago and not covering a team day to day. Uh, if I'm going to go to a game, odds are, thanks to our, our, our staff size, we're probably going to have that game covered from a team standpoint. And so uh, for me to, to, to uh, justify going on the road and going to a game and covering something that we already have pretty thoroughly covered, uh, I'm going to need to be able to deliver something to the readers that they're not going to be able to get anywhere else. And so in the case of Louisville, I'm going to go behind the scenes and be in the locker room for uh, – 
you know, obviously a big game on Labor Day night that the nation was watching, but also for, for the start of a new era with, with Scott Satterfield, which uh, could not be any more different at Louisville right now than the way things had run in the past under Bobby Petrino, uh, to be able to bring readers inside uh, the locker room pre and post game and a halftime and, and to be able to kind of be a fly on the wall throughout that weekend there and see the way they were going to do their business and see the way they performed, which was pretty valiantly uh, against a team that, that they were definitely overmatched against in Notre Dame. Uh, it was a pretty cool experience. And again, I've seen that resonate with readers and it's always rewarding to see, uh, you know, the stuff that you've worked the hardest on, the relationships that you, you've spent the most time trying to build, uh, translating into a, a readable product that I think fans uh, enjoy uh, taking in. You covered Notre Dame for a while. Um, are there any concerns if you're a Notre Dame fan, do you think, about the performance? I mean, it was kind of kind of sloppy. Obviously, Louisville got up for a big game under the lights, first game with a new coach. Um, what did you think overall? I-, I watched the game with a Notre Dame fan, so that's why I'm really curious because he, <laughs> he, he wouldn't sit down the whole time and uh, was pretty stressed. So uh, what's the what are the Irish looking like after week one? Yeah, I was on the sideline for Louisville, and I didn't have any cell service there, which is probably a good thing because I can only imagine like the texts and the tweets that Notre Dame fans were having after Louisville marched it down their throats on the first two drives of the game for touchdowns, which no one saw coming. Um, I thought the defense adjusted well uh, as the game wore on. I think they were able to kind of neutralize that Louisville offense, adjust to the tempo, uh, and really you know make, make Juwan pass the shell himself by, by the second half. Uh, that said... Louisville should never run for 249 yards uh, against Notre Dame, at least a Louisville team that uh, is starting from scratch from, from a program standpoint with a new coaching staff. That, that just should, should happen regardless of how young you are defensively if you're Notre Dame. I also think uh, Ian Book just didn't play all that well. Uh, is that alarming? I don't know. I think we're going to have to wait and see. Certainly, they're not going to beat Georgia and Athens in a couple weeks with a performance like that, but they do have a bye this week. They have New Mexico uh, and their home opener a week after that. You need to see Ian Book make some progress here and at least look like Ian Book who will help lead them to a 12-0 regular season record last year because the last two showings that the, the general public has seen right now is the Cotton Bowl against Clemson, which obviously didn't go well, and uh, this game this past Monday against Louisville, which while it worked out in Notre Dame's favor in the end, uh, I don't think that offense, despite having all their injuries, um, uh, I think they still should perform better than they did, and I think that starts with the quarterback. And uh, if you're Notre Dame, I, I think you do sleep easy at night knowing that you know the first guy who's going to tell you he needs to play better is Ian Book, and I think the coaching staff knows that. And this is a guy who knows how to take coaching and uh, who's his own harshest critic. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned just yet, but it's week one, and that's all we have to, 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 to go off so far. So I completely understand uh, the fans freaking out and melting down because things absolutely do need to get better as the season moves along. Yeah, I mean, it's a team that Big Ten fans need to keep an eye on. We saw it last year. They potentially took um, a playoff spot from a Big Ten team. I don't know if, like, specifically there was a, a, a room at the four spot last year. But, you know, with um, you know Notre Dame in the mix, that's always something to keep an eye on. Um, and you compared the Notre Dame-Louisville game to, ironically, a, a Louisville game two years ago when Purdue was kind of starting their rebuild under Jeff Brom and, and compared the energy and the start under a new coach – uh, to what Scott Satterfield's done um, so far at Louisville. So now uh, looking at Purdue and their rough loss on um, this past weekend to Nevada, do you think that rebuild is uh, progressing along like it should? I mean, I think everyone, if you ask Purdue fans two years ago and even a year ago, they'd say, yeah, and they'd be thrilled to have kept Jeff Brom. Um, how, what do you think about the trajectory there and how it stacks up to maybe some of the other rebuilds in the Big Ten, your, your Minnesotas? Your Illinois, your Rutgers. 
I wouldn't worry too much. Now, the way they lost is not good because that's a game that obviously they, they should have won and probably should have put away early in the second half. Um, I, I thought coming into the year, I had that game circled. I had the Mizzou-Wyoming game scheduled, circled, and I had the, the Minnesota-Fresno State game circled. Uh, not to like act like Nostradamus here and say I saw those, two of those losses coming and maybe a third this week, but um, I, I just think anytime you're a Power 5 team, I, I don't know why you would go to a on the road to a group of five team in a, a random location geographically speaking uh, in a different time zone and put your program through that because even when you do win those games uh, they usually take the wind out of your sails a little bit coming back uh, in week two and week three and so um, a lot of times those can be schedule losses as much as they can be team losses uh, that said I, I thought Purdue had a chance to take a step back here coming in just when you look at uh, particularly that offensive line. I mean, they really only had two people returning who had played any college football whatsoever. And when you look at rebuilds, when you look at programs looking to take a step up, that's usually where it starts. And if you don't have the big boys up front, at least the proven big boys up front, uh, that, that can slow you down a bit. So, um, look, I think that's a really good coaching staff. I, I think not just the way they've been able to win six or seven games the past two years, but, you know, having done it mostly – with their defense in year one and having done it mostly with their offense last year, I think is encouraging because that means, you know, this isn't a one trick pony. This is a group that uh, knows how to get the most out of its players, no matter where they are in the field. I just think with that offensive line, as they get into big 10 play in a couple weeks, uh, that could be an alarming, alarming part for, for Purdue fans. But uh, I, I, as far as like the trajectory of the program or any big picture thing like that, uh, no, I, I think Jeff Brown's a, a heck of a coach and, you know, unless he wants a bolt for the NFL or something like that, I have no reason for concern if I'm a Purdue fan right now. You got an up-close look at another rebuild in, in the Big Ten West, and that's Illinois. That one's definitely farther behind in the win column than uh, your Purdue's or Minnesota's in the last couple of years. Uh, you, and you got an up-close look at Illinois' literal rebuild of their new football facility. <laughs> and um, definitely check that out if you're an Illini fan on the Athletics uh, uh, app or website. Uh, what was your impression of the progress when you visited there, talked to the the people in Champaign, and um, then saw pretty solid performance in week one um, from a team that might be a little more talented than people think heading into this year? Heck of a building, um, that's for sure. I, I mean, I haven't seen them all, but I've seen a good good amount of them, and that one uh, is pretty close to the top. Uh, when you look at the investment that Josh Whitman and Lovey Smith have put into that program, uh, you know, I think that's a $79 million building, and it certainly looks like it because they're, it's big. It's got everything you need to succeed from, from a training standpoint, from a recovery standpoint, from a bells and whistles standpoint to recruit. Uh, it's a very, very impressive building. Now, obviously, it's a, for a program that hasn't done a whole lot on the field lately, uh, but they're hoping that changes. I mean, I think they're encouraged by uh, what they're able to do on the field last weekend. Uh, they need to stay healthy. Uh, again, Mike Epstein, you know, this year, uh, excuse me, this week, you know, get, getting hurt again is just very, very unfortunate if you're an Illini fan. Um, but, but this is the year, I think, where, where you need to make a bowl game. I mean, we talk about the facilities, we talk about the recruiting, talk about this being year four for Lovey Smith and his regime. Uh, I, I don't want to go as, as dramatic as say it's now or never for him. Uh, but, but I think you need to win six games this year, and I think that's possible with the talent you have in that building and with the schedule you have uh, in front of you this year. Uh, probably require an upset or two, but uh, they've recruited decently enough where I think you know they, they, they should be able to, to at least hold their own in some of those games that they should be overmatched, at, uh, overmatched in, and it should be able to win the ones um, against some of the lesser teams in the league. So uh, 
I think this is a very, very critical year because, again, when, when you look at the building, when you look at the investments they've put in that program, it, it's not so they can go four and eight or five and seven every year. And if they do do that under Lovey Smith, well, I think he has a chance to survive at five and seven. Five and seven. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to need to eventually then bring in a coach uh, who's going to take him to the next step because much like Purdue, which was able to keep Jeff Brown by – uh, giving them a big contract and, and investing in their facilities, Illinois is getting serious about football. And when you get serious about football, I know uh, you know others in the division and the league are doing it as well, but but they're going to expect results. And I think this is the year they're going to have to deliver. And Matt, before we talk about some more Big Ten football specifics, I want to touch on one more thing you wrote this past weekend from uh, week one of college football. And that was about the ACC Network's debut. Um, they kind of let you into their – behind-the-scenes broadcast, um, and being an employee myself of a fellow conference network, just as someone who, you know, is, is curious about that stuff but wasn't around when uh, we launched back in 07, um, kind of what was the vibe like, what was the experience like, and uh, how are things looking over there at uh, the ACC Network? It was pretty cool. I mean, it, it, you know, everyone involved with it kind of had the, the, the New Year's Day, New Year's Eve ball-dropping vibe to it, um, not just for – a new network, but to launch uh, with the defending national champs and preseason number one team in their house with one of the most iconic intros in sports uh, was really, really cool. I think Derek Volner from College Game Day had tweeted something to the effect of if there is a television network that has debuted featuring the number one team in the country, it was probably in black and white. And I, I think that that's probably true. Uh, so to, to get Clemson on there, to really force the hands of the cable providers. I know there was a handshake agreement with Dish Network that was announced literally right before kickoff. Uh, that means they're, they're, they're getting done what they need to get done from a distribution standpoint. And when you look at Copper Networks, obviously the Big Ten Network was the first of its kind and, and kind of set the bar for everyone else. Uh, but I talked to John Swafford, the ACC commissioner at the game, and he said, yeah, this thing's 10, 15 years in the making. And to finally see it come to fruition like this, to have the league – operating at the level it is right now from a football and men's basketball standpoint when you have the defending champs in both those revenue sports uh, couldn't come at a better time and especially with Clemson opening up as their debut product on Thursday um, I, I think there's a lot of excitement around that league right now and uh, I think the best days are still to come yeah definitely curious to uh, follow their development and, and that network's infancy and uh, like I said it's just kind of a point of fascination for me uh, working over here at BTN but we'll steer it back now towards uh, Big Ten football I'm just Interested in what you thought about week one in general in the Big Ten. What jumped out at you, whether it's performances or trends you might be interested in seeing uh, if they continue down the road? What leaped off the screen or the page following uh, week one in the Big Ten? I would say Wisconsin. Uh, do I say Wisconsin is back, or do we reserve that for just Texas and some of the more uh, traditional <laughs> Texas, Notre Dame, that have been down yeah. and out for a decade or so? Um, Look, uh, I thought last year was aberration. I thought Wisconsin would be back, winning 10 games or so this year. I just think they're uh, too good of a program to be down for too long, and they have too much talent, particularly in the backfield, to be down for too long. Uh, but for them, not just to win, but to win in the manner that they did last week at what uh, is traditionally a very good group of five program in South Florida. I know they're, they're in a bit of a rut right now. I think they've lost seven straight games dating back to, to last season. They have players there, and they, they, they have players that should be capable of at least holding their own against Wisconsin. And the Badgers went in there in a, a road, weird environment on a Friday night and just absolutely owned the moment. Um, you know, winning 49 nothings went one thing. I mean, that speaks a lot to your offense and to obviously Jonathan Taylor. But uh, to not let the Bulls cross the 50-yard line till the fourth quarter, 
that's impressive. That's really impressive. And, and I think uh, that, that that injected the kind of excitement and lifeblood that uh, the fan base and everyone else at the Big Ten needed uh, to, to remind them, hey, uh, we're not going anywhere. We may have had a down year last year, but traditionally this has been our division. We've been the best team in this division. And the road through the West is probably going to go through us, barring anything unforeseen here. And I, I think uh, for them to make the kind of statement they did on Friday night it was big for the division, big for the league, and obviously, most of all, big for Wisconsin. Yeah, and the week one slate overall, uh, not just nationally, but in the Big Ten, it, it was whatever. Um, I think the best game on paper at Northwestern Stanford is probably the least pleasant one to watch. It just wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, but I think week two offers some, some pretty uh, tantalizing matchups and um, some interesting power five matchups and some interesting uh mid-majors or group of five teams challenging big 10 squads so what jumps out at you matchup wise uh for week two in the big 10 i think you gotta go to ohio state of michigan i mean cincinnati it was my pick at the beginning of the year to be uh the group of five's representative in the new year six uh, they beat ucla i don't think ucla looked all that great but i also think that game was not nearly as close as the final score uh 10 point margin would indicate it i think Luke Fickle coming back to Ohio State. Uh, how has that, that Cincinnati program up and rolling as, as good as any in the American Athletic Conference, I think, this season? Uh, that's going to be an interesting one. I'm, I'm curious to see how uh, the Ryan, a, Ryan Day era Buckeyes respond in their first true test uh, with him as their full-time coach. I think that's a very exciting game to watch. And I think uh, the one I'll be going to this week in Ann Arbor, Army, Michigan, is another very interesting one to watch. Uh, Army's another team, I think, that could – potentially compete for a, a New Year's Six spot if they were able to win this game. Now, I know they're not technically eligible for it the way um, the, the group of five is because they're an independent, but uh, who's going to tell an undefeated Army team no? <laughs> so uh, they, they should have beat Oklahoma last season. Uh, they won 11 games last year. They absolutely branded Houston in, in set for 70 points in, in their bowl game. And uh, the, the, they're on a roll right now. I think Jeff Munkin's one of the better up-and-coming coaches in the country. And if he can go in and uh, – hold his own or even win against Jim Harbaugh in Michigan where uh, the jury's still out and the fans are still a little antsy in Ann Arbor. I, I think that would be uh, a tremendous notch under Army's belt and one that, 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 you know, if they haven't already would announce this program to the national audience saying we have arrived, uh, which I, I, I think they kind of have after winning 11 games last year. But uh, anytime you go into the big house or one of college football's blue buds and, and win or, or play well, like they did last year at Oklahoma, I think that is a very, very impressive thing to do. And, uh, you know, this being just week two and us not knowing a whole lot about either team so far, I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, I tweeted from the Big Ten Network account earlier today, um, is Luke Fickle's return to Ohio, or is this the biggest return in Ohio since LeBron, just kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> and I think it went over some, some fans' heads, but, uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, you mentioned the game in Ann Arbor will be good as well. We'll be looking for your coverage from there. The athletic. Um, how about nationally? What, what will you be uh, tuned into? I know Auburn, Oregon was kind of the main event this past weekend, but not a whole lot going on besides that. What's uh, what's on the slate nationally outside of the Big Ten um, in week two that you're looking forward to? Uh, Stanford USC is going to be interesting uh, because it looks like well, I don't know about KJ Costello, but obviously in the case of USC, you're starting quarterbacks out and. For Stanford, your starting quarterback might be out as well, and that's always a, an interesting rivalry game that helps set the tone for either team throughout the rest of the Pac-12 season. So that's one that I think is under the radar, and I believe it's a Pac-12 after dark game this week. So um, they'll have a lot of eyeballs on them after they get done watching uh, what goes down in Austin between Tom Herman's uh, Longhorns and uh, Coach O's LSU Tigers, which uh, that's the game of the week. I mean, game day's there for a reason. 
those two obviously fought over Tom Herman, hiring, trying to hire Tom Herman uh, a couple years ago uh, when he was on a roll at Houston. And I'm curious to see both those programs, how they progress in the third full years uh, under those respective head coaches. And the other one I think you got to keep an eye on is Steph Valley, uh, Texas A&M at Clemson. Uh, I think the next two weeks are probably the two toughest games of the season, at least on schedule right now for Clemson between Texas A&M and Syracuse, two teams that almost beat Clemson last year. Um, I think if Clemson rolls through both, which is possible, uh, I think both could be close games too. But if they roll through both, I just think the rest of the ACC is just going to kind of put their heads down and think, what chance do we have? Because uh, I think those are going to be the two stiffest tests they have. Yeah, I hope they keep the Pac-12 after dark thing going. I don't need my Pac-12 before brunch or whatever that alternative that they're proposing for the 9 a.m. games. I uh, I like getting home and then watching a late game, so hopefully that sticks. Um, Matt, before we wrap up, got to ask about Penn State because you went there, right? I did, yeah. All right. Well, uh, many errors ago, but yeah, I did go there. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that long ago. We'll, uh, we'll get your expertise on Penn State before wrapping up because I assume, you know, like most people in their alma mater, you probably follow them closely. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on if you think they're on Michigan and Ohio State's level in the East because a lot of the prognostications and um, predictions had either Michigan or Ohio State winning the East this year. Penn State obviously has a lot of talent, but they have some question marks. Um how Sean Clifford will do, and uh, just a lot of youth on that squad. So do you think they measure up? Yeah, it's funny. Being in Chicago, I know it's a Big Ten country, but Penn State's often like the forgotten stepchild relative to to everyone else uh, from an alma alma mater standpoint uh, in the Big Ten. Uh, I haven't had my ears to the ground, I think, as closely as a, a lot of people, at least on the East Coast, have, and I have a lot of friends who are in the media, who are, who are you know, diehards and go to every game and, and go crazy for every game. And uh, it was alarming to me, or I guess curious to me, uh, throughout the summer to hear just how down all my friends were on them and how they thought they were going to win seven or eight games this year. And uh, look, maybe they do. Uh, I don't think we, you know, as good as they looked last week as Idaho, so I don't think you can make any grand proclamations just yet. Uh, I will say this, though. James Franklin has done a heck of a job with that program. He's turned it around a lot quicker than I, I thought was imaginable. And he, you know, he's recruited on par, I think, with Michigan, maybe just a little bit behind Ohio State. And I think this is the year where you see the fruits of that labor on the recruiting trail come to life. I mean, you have a lot of, I don't want to say no names, but you have a lot of mysteries. You have a lot of first-time starters, especially a quarterback. Anytime you lose a three-year starter who's become synonymous with your program, uh, that's going to, to uh, lend itself to a little bit of curiosity about what, what that offense is going to look like. But uh, I think we learned a little bit about this program and the staff and just how well – uh, perception versus reality matches up when it comes to recruiting rankings because I think on paper when you look at what they've been able to do off the field the past couple of years uh, they should be as good as anyone in the East this year. Uh, whether that bears fruit or not uh, remains to be seen but but I think it makes them one of the great mystery teams in the Big Ten and really throughout the country this year. Alright last question Matt. Still Penn State related because we were just there um, a few weeks ago for the bus tour and we had a BTN employee and Penn State grad kind of show us around on a Friday night. What do you know about like the saloon and, and champs and some places like that? <laughs> Where was your go-to spot? Because I think we, we hit them all. You know, I was there for a reunion for the spring game last year, and it was like, what is this place? Like, champs was not downtown. That used to be, I think, a TGI Fridays. I mean, ever or a Chili's or something. I mean, it's it's so remarkably different uh, from when I was there. And again, I don't think I'm that old. I'm 30, uh, full disclosure. Uh, saloon was there. Enjoy the saloon. 
always like the first. I know that they've got a, another one, I think, on top of it right now, but I believe the first is still up and running. Yeah, we went to the that first That was kind store. of our go-to Saturday night to go see their bands after the game. And, that was like a, uh, that, that's like a that basement, fun, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely went there, too. <laughs> always a good time. Exactly. Uh, and I think one of those nights we were there, we were there for the weekend, and I think I had Taco Bell and McDonald's in the same night. So that's that's always clutch to have your, your fast food that, that right Taco there. That Taco Bell was – I used to live, I lived right above where it is now, but, um, thank God for all of our sakes. That was not there when I was there. That'd be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, Matt, that's all I got for you. We'll wrap it up on that note. Really appreciate your insight and your time. And we will definitely be following your work the rest of the year, uh, starting with Michigan this weekend. Awesome. Anytime, Alex. Appreciate you having me. All right. All right, thanks once again to Matt for joining the show. Appreciate him. Definitely have to get him back on at some point. I'm surprised it's taken this long, honestly, for me to reach out to him and get him on because, uh, like I said, Big Ten guy with a lot of knowledge. Obviously uh, very skilled and good at his job and has a national platform. So good guy to have him in the role decks and great guy to, uh, to talk to for about a half hour here on the show. Moving on now, as I mentioned at the top, we'll bring in our researcher here at the network, Harold Shelton, to dive into the numbers behind the breakdowns of Big Ten football. Um, a lot of uh, just casual discussion thrown in as well, but uh, Harold's, Harold's got a really good knack for working in you know, some pretty in-depth stats and figures that uh, he you know goes behind the scenes on our TV shows, does a great job there, but uh, brings to the forefront with his voice here on the podcast. So, Without uh, any further delay, we'll kick it over to Harold Shelton and myself for the weekly StatHead segment. And that segment starts right now. All right, back again with the uh, first edition of the StatHead segment in 2019 football season. We're in our makeshift studio, H. Welcome in. Hopefully we don't get any uh, disturbances as, as we sit here in this kind of temporary conference room. Hey, I hope not, but you know, we adapt, you know, we, we move around, but the show still goes on no matter where we are, so it's all good. The show does go on, and uh, we'll kick it off by talking about some week one action that we saw, um, you know, closer to week two than we are week one at this point, but I think it's worth talking about a little bit, some of the significant numbers that might have stood out to you, you are the stat head, this is the stat head segment, so just off the top, what uh, what jumped out at you looking at a, a pretty mild week one schedule? There wasn't too many marquee matchups, but uh, there were some some big numbers and some big names that stood out. Um, so, again, you know, week one is kind of hard to take too much from. But, you know, I was interested in seeing how, you know, Maryland looked. And, you know, Josh Jackson certainly looked the part. He looked like he did uh, as freshman year at Virginia Tech. You know, Maryland has had quarterback issues ever since they joined the league. It seems like there's always been at least one, if not two, major injuries at that position, which kind of derails everything they want to do. Um, If he's able to stay healthy, you pair him with McFarland and all that speed they've got under Mike Loxley, and they could be dangerous. Um, You know, Penn State, you know, all of the questions, you know, how's the offense going to look after Trace? And, you know, you see they have a lot of speed. And Clifford, you know, certainly looked apart. Granted, it was Idaho, so we still have to wait and see there. But, you know, I talk about those two because they both put up 79 points. And it was the first time since 1915 that you had two Big Ten teams score 75-plus in the same week. So, when you get something that hadn't happened in 100 years, you kind of have to talk about that first, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. And just kind of touching on the 79 points, I was surprised 
at you know Penn State. Obviously, that's one thing that's cool for them. But uh, Maryland is a little more significant, obviously, with the Jordan McNair tie-in and him being number seventy-nine. And I was surprised it kind of not in Big Ten circles, but outside of the Big Ten, some of the backlash on social media. Uh, I don't know if you saw any of it, but there were some tweets that went viral about the seventy-nine points and a lot of the, like, the replies in the Twitter bubble, which you know you can't really take at face value because it is a bubble. Some of the replies were saying, you know, oh, like it's, it's kind of a, a dirty or empty gesture. You know, it's tainted. And at this point, I think with everyone gone um, and the players who are Jordan's friends that are still there, I, I just think that's it, it's wrong to try and tell them how to honor, you know, their fallen teammate. I know this is getting away from the stat head segment, but I want to touch on it because, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything nefarious that you can take away from a 79-point win. I thought it was a nice tribute and a cool cool gesture by them. Yeah, no, I definitely think, uh, you know, the players who obviously are still close uh, with Jordan McNair, you know, that's a fallen teammate, fallen brother of theirs. You know, I think there was no issue uh, on their end. Um, I think at times us in media could try to latch on to a feel-good story. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the backlash might have been due to that, not due to Maryland scoring 79 or, you know, the, the way it happened. But the media, sometimes we can latch on to a story and kind of forget all of the the messed up details that led to his passing in the first place. And I think that's where the issue That's lies. a good point, too. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, uh, good perspective to have on it. But, um, you know, moving on, obviously, um, significant number in the Maryland game, uh, significant number, like you said, with the two Big Ten teams scoring 75-plus. That was uh, two of the blowouts that happened this this weekend. Um, another one that kind of jumped out was Wisconsin. Uh, looked really good at South Florida. South Florida is a team that, you know, halfway through last year looked like could be a New Year's Day team. They kind of fell apart last year and obviously have regressed by the looks of what Wisconsin did to them. Did, did uh, that surprise you at all with what Jonathan Taylor was able to do with four touchdowns and, and with how uh, the Badgers took it to him on the road? Yeah, I'd argue Wisconsin probably was the most dominant team in week one um, when you factor everything in. Obviously, I know, you know, Maryland and Penn State both scored 79 and, you know, Maryland you know, had a shutout. But Wisconsin, they did it on the road against the FBS team. You know, there was all the questions about how the offense would look with, you know, Jack Cohn being the starter and losing all those offensive linemen and the much maligned defense. And it kind of looked like the diversion we saw from, you know, Paul Chris' first three years. You know, they completely shut South Florida's water off. And, you know, Jonathan Taylor went crazy. But the thing that was interesting is that he went crazy as a receiver as well. Sure. You know, the his freshman and sophomore year, he had eight catches uh, each of those seasons. And he never had a touchdown catch. And then he gets two in the opener. And, you know, he's already, you know, a quarter of the way to, you know, the most catch he's, he's ever had in the season. So if they find a way to get him the ball in space and not just handing it off to him, that, that offense becomes more dangerous. He becomes more of a threat in the Heisman race. And that whole West race could be, you know, Wisconsin's to lose. Yeah, I mean, I know you remember our, our intro to Jonathan Taylor was on the bus tour 2017. And he caught a pass out of the backfield with one hand and took it uh, – Took it to the house, so that's you know kind of finally coming to fruition maybe here. I don't I don't think it's a fluke like you said. I think he might be might be seeing a trend uh, with Taylor catching more passes out of the backfield. Um, so yeah, that was good to see. And then I didn't really watch much of the Ohio State Florida Atlanta game, but I, I looked over and before you know the game really got underway, it was like twenty one nothing, twenty eight nothing, and Justin Fields had five touchdowns in his debut. It was uh you know Lane Kiffin's Florida Atlantic team. It wasn't you know an impressive opponent, but 
I feel like you can't really ask for much more. And, and as a Buckeye fan, if you're a Buckeye fan, you can't you know expect a better debut out of Justin Fields. Yeah, I thought Fields was great, especially early. Uh, like you said, it was twenty-eight nothing. You know, pretty much the first eight minutes of the game. You know, you could kind of wipe score at that point. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know, they looked really explosive. Uh, you got to see all of the talent in you know one package. You know, he, he runs for fifty-one yards and a touchdown off a of read. Then you see him throwing guys open. Uh, you know, down the field. So you kind of see the total package. But I would say it was a little uneven after that. The offense wasn't nearly as crisp after those first uh, eight-plus minutes. And, you know, the fields took some shots. You know, it looks like he was throwing the ball a little late at times. And, you know, I think that just, you know, kind of comes with the territory. You know, first start, you know, getting the cobwebs out. You know, I, I think that, you know, Ryan Day obviously is a great play caller. You kind of saw some different things out of them. You know, they were actually under center for a little bit, which you never saw under mm-hmm. Urban. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's going to be an evolving offense for Ohio State and for Fields, and I wouldn't be shocked if they got better every week. Yeah, and then there were some teams that handled business, uh, some in more impressive fashion than others. Uh, Rutgers struggled a little bit early, but then rolled. Uh, same with Iowa a little bit. They, they handled – Miami, Ohio, pretty easily in the second half. Uh, you know, you look down the list here. Michigan, it was a little shaky for a while. Like, I think Michigan fans would have been more comfortable with a bigger lead. And Michigan State as well, they didn't put up a whole lot of points. I think some of the offensive struggles are, are still there. Um, but the defense, of course, was elite and top-notch. So I don't really put any of those teams in the, the struggling category or, or anything to be too concerned about in week one. I don't know if you disagree, but uh, there were some teams, especially in the Big Ten West, that did struggle, and we can get into that a little bit. I don't know if the teams that did struggle changed your outlook or mindset on how deep or strong the conference is going to be. It's only one week, obviously, but I want to get your thoughts on some of the teams that, that uh, had maybe a little more difficulties than, than we would have expected in a week one uh, matchup against you know inferior opponents. Uh, well, the Purdue loss, I would say it wasn't surprising. Um, you know, I thought they would be a team that would have the ability to score a lot of points, but also give up a lot of points, and that's kind of what we saw. I think a lot of people, uh, the media included, had them fifth in the West before the year started. Um, I still think they'll be dangerous because, you know, they've got great skill players and they've got a quarterback that could throw it around, so they could give, you know, teams trouble when they're on their game, but – same time every game they play is going to be a shootout so I wasn't surprised to see that they lost how they lost was definitely disappointing yeah, I looked that up it was a 96% win probability in the fourth quarter at some point I mean everything had to go wrong for Purdue to lose that game and it was just one of those things you know a weird game on the west coast late at night kind of funky like high school stadium vibe going on in Reno and it was just one of those things that snowballed on him it was it was a crazy into that game. I don't know if you stayed up for it. Oh, yeah, no, I certainly did. Uh, we, we couldn't go on the air without That's it. right. You guys are still here. I was <laughs> so at home you. watching, but I was like, unbelievable. I can't believe that, that Purdue uh, <laughs> didn't walk out of there with a win. It really started with the Rondale Moore yeah, buff, the buff punt. punt. That kind of yeah. set everything in motion. But, yeah, it's, that's just a tough one to swallow. Yeah, for sure it is. And, you know, it's kind of been the, the M.O. under Brown so far. I mean, you know, we've seen them pull off some upsets. You know, we've seen them, you know, pound Ohio State and beat Iowa and pound B.C., but, you know, they've blown some games in the fourth quarter, too, and, you know, it's just kind of, you know, obviously it's still early, you know, 27 games into his career. You know, he's still trying to get some of his guys in, but, you know, they're 4-9 and in one-possession games, and so, 
you know, until that defense gets better, you might see, you know, some more blown leads, unfortunately. Right, and a couple other contenders in the West coming into the season, Northwestern was never late in the game. Uh, shaky quarterback play. Unfortunately, T.J. Green got injured. Um, so it looks like it's going to have to be Hunter Johnson, even though that was up for some uh, debate earlier in the season or in the preseason. And uh, Minnesota struggled with an FCS team, a very good FCS program, but uh, an FCS team nonetheless. So there's a couple of contenders uh, that kind of fit into the, the question I asked earlier, if you know the performances in week one shook your confidence in the, the Big Ten West as a whole at all. Uh the Northwestern one, I'd say for a different reason. I, I, guess, I guess all of these performances for different reasons. You know, people thought Northwestern could struggle offensively because you're replacing Clayton Thorson. You know, he's a four-year guy. But you didn't expect the drop-off to be as drastic as it was. Mm-hmm. You know, Hunter Johnson, he sat out all of last year, so you figured he would have been kind of more up to speed with the offense. I thought it was eye-opening that he didn't separate himself from T.J. Green in the first place. You figure a guy who was a former five-star sure. quarterback has a whole know, year, ha- prepared, has a whole year right. prepared. He would, you know, take the job and run with it, and he didn't. And then you see in the game against Stanford how much he struggled, and you you can see why Pat Fitzgerald said, "Hey, this is you know a two-man race, and we're both going to play." And Green right. actually played much better than Johnson did. Um, if so, if Johnson has issues like that going forward, then you know Northwestern's kind of in the Michigan State box where the defense is going to have to do everything. Um, I would say for Minnesota, you know, skilled players are there, but that offensive line didn't play well, and I think that was a big reason why they couldn't get going. They couldn't run the ball. They couldn't protect Tanner Morgan. You know, Kamal Martin didn't play on defense, and you could see guys were all out of position, and so that was a major reason why they could have lost that game. And I'd even throw Nebraska in there. I mean, yeah, you know, they were Nebraska. the pick to the win the West by a lot of people. Um, Adrian Martinez did not play well. Scott Frost, you know, kind of called him out and the offense saying they need to be better. And it was the black shirt defense, the much maligned black shirt defense who bailed them out with, you know, two defensive touchdowns. I mean, they were a five touchdown favorite, you know, in that game. And it was a one score game in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's so early. It's week one. It's hard to take too much out of it. But Wisconsin, I think, separated themselves for sure. Um, I think the rest kind of tightened up. If anything, I think I think Illinois showed that they you know might be granted it's against Akron. They might be uh, a little closer to your Purdue's and, and Minnesota's than maybe was given credit for earlier uh, in the preseason. So you know the, the middle of the West I think is still tight and deep, but um, Wisconsin I think proved or at least gave gave us a little bit of reason to believe there could be some separation there. Uh, Iowa second half was solid but uh the first half you know was a little shaky so we'll see it's it's just so early um but i'm glad you brought up nebraska because that leads into um our look ahead to week two which i think is a little more intriguing than the week one slate that uh featured a lot of blowouts and a lot of kind of just uninteresting matchups so this is going to be a lot better um so we'll start with nebraska and colorado a rematch from last year it was Nebraska's first game under Scott Frost last year. It was an exciting game and a game they lost nonetheless. So you think it'll be uh, different this time around? I know Colorado is a new coach. They have one of the best players in the country in LaVisca Chenault. Uh, what are you expecting? What, what, what should Nebraska expect out of, uh, out of the buffs in Boulder? Uh, well, I, fig- I figured they're going to throw it around a lot again, just like they did last year. You know, Steven Montez is back. 
you know, LaVisca Chanel had a monster game against them mm-hmm. last year. The game went a touchdown in Lincoln against them. Uh, you know, they were a team that started fast and kind of faded late, you know, similar to South Florida as we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, it's I mean, this is a rivalry. I mean, you know, they've played over 70 times. You know, this used to be the Black Friday game after Thanksgiving, right. and a lot of times it would decide who would win the Big 12 or the Big 8. And so, you know, they haven't been out there in a decade. Colorado fans are ready for this game. I would expect a very hostile environment. Got altitude involved. If that offense doesn't play, you know, better than it did in week one, I think Nebraska's in major trouble. Right. You can't have a South Alabama performance. Um, that's for sure. Uh, a couple of other interesting Power Five matchups. Uh, we talked about Purdue. Vandy's coming into Purdue. And then uh, Syracuse and Dino Babers, a uh, coach in a program we talked a little bit about in the past, is facing Maryland. So um, how do you like those kind of interesting matchups shaking out it's it's interesting because you know we still don't really know what we have in Purdue and Maryland this year um Maryland's obviously a, a rebuild in progress and I, I would argue you know your 300 Jeff Brom's a little bit of a retool so uh what are you looking for as, as far as you know 120 top 25 team in Syracuse coming in and then a, a Vanderbilt team that we don't really know what to expect out of them because they played Georgia in week one so that was kind of a blowout right um, I would say that that Maryland game is certainly intriguing. They're actually favored. Yeah, which uh, I was surprised to see. And I guess after week one, I can kind of see it more so on the Syracuse side. You know, they played a Liberty team who's not that good. And granted, it was on the road. They won. It was 20, I think it was 24 nothing. Mm-hmm. That, the whole Hugh Freeze fiasco, which is a whole right. other Fortuna and I get into that. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other situation. <laughs> but, um, you know, they replaced a four-year starter at quarterback. Uh, you know, Tommy DeVito came in, did not play well at all. Uh, he completed under 50% of his passes against Liberty. It's not a promising sign when right. you're going up against, you know, better competition going forward. Um, you know, I think Maryland's got a lot of athletes, got a lot of speed. You know, I think that's a game that the Terps could win. And, and if they do, then maybe you're looking at, you know, five teams in that East instead of four. Uh, you know, I I am a believer in that offense. If Josh Jackson is healthy, I think they should be able to score some points on them. Yeah. And if Syracuse continues to have bad QB play, I think they'll lose. Yeah, how familiar are you with Vanderbilt this year? Because I'm really not at all. Um, and like I said, it's hard to read them playing one of the best teams in the country in week one. What do you expect them to bring to West Lafayette for Purdue's home opener? Well, you know, they got your guy, you know, Keyshawn Vaughn. That's true, yeah. You know, Keyshawn Vaughn. Can't forget about him. Yeah. I mean, he's projected to be, you know, one of the t- top running backs drafted. Yeah, exactly. Year, so. uh, you know, and he's definitely familiar with Purdue. Uh, you know, I want to say he, a big ran, game for, against yeah, say he yeah. ran for 180 as a freshman against the Boilers. Obviously, that's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, before Jeff Brom even got there. Yeah. But Nice uh, job, Garrick McGee, with uh, Keyshawn Vaughn <laughs> running him off. That was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, outside of him, they don't have a ton uh, you know, Riley Neal is the quarterback there. He played at Ball State, so he's familiar with a lot of Big Ten venues. But they didn't look great at all against Georgia. The offense really couldn't do much. You're held to six points. They gave up over 300 yards rushing. So uh, it's a game that Purdue is favored in. I think it's a game that they should win if they protect the ball. You know, they turned it over five times against Nevada. I think if they, you know, limit that, then they should be able to win. Uh, the biggest thing, at least pregame for me, is this: they will announce the Tyler Trent gate. That'll be um, cool. Yep. You know, in the pregame ceremony, and his family will be the first members through that gate. So I'm looking forward to seeing how all that will 
we'll look i know tailgate will be there as well so right. we'll have a big blowout for that and that that'll be a pretty cool yeah moment. definitely watch btn tailgate i think there's going to be a uh, feature on the, the trent gate i believe so um that'll all be you know definitely worth a watch um as tailgate always is and speaking of you know the BTN, the Big Ten, um, first Big Ten matchup this week, Rutgers and Iowa. Um, I don't think anyone expects Rutgers to go into Kinnick and win, but uh, I don't know if you had any any thoughts on after seeing Rutgers and seeing Iowa in week one and getting, I guess, a matchup that's a week later than we've had in the last couple of years. I think we've opened on, uh, with a Big Ten opener in week one the last couple of years. Um, how, do you, how do you expect the debut in-conference matchup to shake out? Uh, so, you know, I was happy that Rutgers was able to snap their streak. I was I, I was happy to see that they were able to score some points. They actually looked like they have some weapons with Isaiah Pacheco, with Bo Melton. You know, mm-hmm. we've been kind of yeah, Melton waiting. looked great. We've been kind of waiting on Bo Melton for a couple of years now. Uh, you know, Chris Ash decided to go with the Texas Tech transfer, McLean Carter mm-hmm. over Arsikowski. Uh, you know, he had an up and down performance, but you know, he was able to stretch the field. Uh, you know, I think that gives Rutgers some options. However. You know, they won 35-7 in the opener last year. There was optimism that, you know, they'll be better. They lost 11 straight. I don't I kind of want to hold my horses there, you know. But if they could be competitive in Kinnick, you know, I'm not expecting them to win. But, you know, if they're competitive, you know, as opposed to, you know, getting blown out, then I think that could actually be a building block for them uh, going through September. Yeah, agreed. And just looking down the line here, I mean, Eastern Illinois and Indiana, that should be a win. Um, Illinois and UConn, UConn's really bad. Uh, Illinois should be able to take a step there. Um, and then we got the directional schools in Michigan taking on uh, Wisconsin. Central Michigan is uh, going to Madison. And then the Broncos, Western Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, you know, you're the Michigan guy. You're also the Sparty guy. Any challenge expected there? Uh, this, this isn't your P.J. Fleck Broncos. And I don't know anything about the Chippewas this year. So uh, Wisconsin and, and Michigan State, a couple of top 20 teams. Should they be okay? Uh, definitely think Wisconsin should be fine. Uh, you know, I, I can't see Central Michigan being able to line up and stop Jonathan Taylor from mm-hmm. kind of doing what he wants. And that defense should get after Jim McElwain, you know, old friend of the Big right. Ten, you know, yeah. former Michigan assistant and all that. So they should be able to get after uh, Central. You know, Michigan State, it seems like they play Western every other year. Right. You know, they played them a couple years ago uh, in week two as well. That's when people kind of found out about Brian Lewerke. He ran for a long touchdown in that game. Uh, defensively, I feel like they should be able to get after the Broncos. It would be nice to see the offense, you know, kind of open up. You know, they haven't scored 30 points uh, in 10 straight games. And so it would be nice as a Big Ten fan, as a Michigan State fan, to kind of see that offense, you know, reach the end zone more than once, which is what happened against Tulsa. Sure. And, um, you know, a couple other intriguing matchups, Army – at Michigan, and then Minnesota going out west to Fresno State. Like we talked about it, how dangerous those West Coast trips are, especially you know things get weird late at night. The kick isn't even till like ten thirty Eastern. Fresno State's historically been a tough program. Um, it's a close game last year in Minneapolis. So we'll start with Army Michigan matchup. You know Army runs this uh, throwback offense. They never pass the ball. Give me some insight into just how unique that rushing attack is and if it poses any problems for for Michigan um it certainly can pose problems you know they're they're a triple option team uh you know they I mean they love to run the ball I mean they've gone games last year where they haven't attempted a pass there's been games where you know they've only thrown a couple but haven't had completions 
they had Oklahoma on the ropes last year. You could argue they could have beat mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, they had the ball for over 44 minutes in that game against the Sooners, and it was a big reason why it went to overtime. It's just one of those games where, you know, if Army, you know, takes the first drive and, you know, goes 80 yards and – 12 plays and you know takes nine minutes off the clock it could just really limit the other team's possessions so I think it's important for Michigan to get out to a lead and kind of make Army uncomfortable so they can't just stay in that triple option Um, if it winds up being close and you know in a half or you know through three quarters then I think Michigan should be in a dogfight but for whatever reason, Army only won 14-7 against a Rice team that wasn't really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that game was tied late in the fourth quarter before Army was able to pull it out. So, you know, even though they've won 10 straight, you know, which is the second longest active streak in the country, this might not be the same Army team from last year. All right, H, I know you got to go. So just want to, before we wrap up, see if you have any thoughts on the in-state battle, Cincinnati at Ohio State, the, the Luke Fickle returns game. Uh, anything there that, that stands out or do you think Ohio State should roll again? Ah, they should roll again. I mean, Cincinnati, you know, under Fickle, he's done a great job. You know, they've won 13 in the last 15 games. You know, that's it's always a tricky game. There's nothing to gain for, uh, if you're Ohio State from it. You know, it's a game you're supposed to win. And, but Cincinnati, you know, they've got, you know, all of the, the intangible stuff mm-hmm. there. It's all of the guys who wanted to go to Ohio State that didn't get offered. It's the guy who used to play at Ohio State, was a coach at Ohio State, but didn't really get the – the call for the head job, you know, Ryan Day gets it instead. Yep. So, you know, all of that stuff kind of goes into it. And I think, you know, there's obviously motivation for the Bearcats in that one, but I just don't think they have the talent to beat Ohio State. All right, we'll end there. A lot of analysis. It's kind of how it goes in these early season uh, weeks, you know, where we got 12, 13 games to talk about. So uh, glad we could pretty much touch on all of them and, and kind of recap last week. H, thanks as always, and be on the lookout for Harold's new digital segment the 10 dropping weekly um usually on on friday nights on twitter facebook instagram we're gonna try and get that out so thanks h for uh contributing there thanks for jumping on the pod as always and we'll do it again next week sounds good appreciate it all right thanks once again to harold and matt fortuna for joining the show got week one in the bag week two coming up kind of a, uh, a grind, a pattern, just a rhythm that we get into now with football season underway. Um, it all goes really fast, so I'm uh, going to try and live in the moment a little bit, try and get a really quality episode at least once a week out to everyone, and um, maybe we'll, we'll squeeze a few more in here and there. But once a week is the goal, so definitely keep it locked and subscribe if you can to the Take 10 Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, and you can also get the uh, video version on YouTube. Uh, No video yet. That might be coming later this year, actually, of the recording of the podcast, but you can play it on your desktop or on your app um, through YouTube on the Big Ten Network YouTube channel. So with that that all behind us and week one behind us, we will keep it rolling here on the show. Thanks, as always, to Wes White, and Julie Bronder for helping to produce it. Thanks as always to everyone out there who listened, and we'll talk to you soon here on the Take 10 Podcast.